Let's turn to 2 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Just to give you a little background, of course, obviously the author is John the Beloved, the Apostle John, also known as the Apostle of Love. And as we will see today, you could also refer to him as the Apostle of Truth. Big themes in his writings, love and truth, and we'll see how they go hand in hand. The date of the writing of this letter is around 90 A.D., and John was around 90 years of age when he wrote it. So this would come uh, just right around the same time as the book of Revelation, these three epistles of John, and then the book of Revelation. Now, the recipients of this letter, the destination of John's second letter is a little bit of a mystery, but we'll explore that as well. In verse 1, he says, the elder, referring to himself, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Now, some scholars believe that the elect or chosen lady, as some translations read chosen, is a figurative way of designating a particular church. And in verse 13, he refers to the elect or chosen sister, which would then mean probably a different church. Others believe the letter was addressed to an individual Christian and her family, in which case the sister would be her natural sister. I lean towards the former interpretation that is indeed a church that he is writing to. And as I mentioned... It was written around the same time as the other letters of John from the same place, Ephesus. And again, the main teaching of 2 John, this one chapter of 2 John, has to do with walking in Christ's commandments. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then we'll pray. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we are excited to study this second epistle or letter from the Apostle John to what we believe was a church. Uh, in his area there, that region of the world. God, we ask that you'd bless this time of study, that you would open up our understanding to this passage and that we would learn and be able to apply the truths that we find in this passage in our own lives. Bless this time of Bible study, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So notice at the outset of this epistle, John refers to himself as the elder. And this would be true both spiritually and literally because he is now of an advanced age, as we already discussed, about 90 years of age. So he was truly an elder in every sense of the word. Uh, Webster's 1828 dictionary defines an elder or bishop in this way. In the primitive church, which means the early church, in the primitive church, a spiritual overseer, an elder or presbyter, one who had the pastoral care of a church. And so everybody already knows he's an apostle. He doesn't need to toot his own horn. He simply refers to himself as the elder, a pastor, a shepherd. And that's his motivation in writing this 
letter to shepherd the flock. And so to the elect or chosen lady, I mentioned already, I believe this is to either, obviously it's to the whole church because it's been preserved for us to study here today in 2019. To the church and also to an individual church, the chosen lady, uh, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and to her children, so the people in the church. He's identifying with the church as a whole, and then specifically the people in the church, the ones who make up the local body of believers or constitute what is known as the bride of Christ, and we are part of that as well. Whom I love in the truth. Now, first of all, as you may suspect, as we encounter this word love throughout this book, this one-chapter book, the Greek word is, in fact, agape or a derivative thereof. So he's talking about that highest form of love, the unconditional love that God has expressed towards us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the love that we are to exhibit one to another, that kind of love we can only exhibit when the Holy Spirit lives within us, agape. And that's the word he's using. So this is not phileo, it's not brotherly love, it's not warm, tender feelings of affection, and it's certainly not eros, that lustful love of the flesh, which the word is not used in the New Testament, by the way. This is agape. And this is what he also expresses in 3 John towards his friend Gaius. 3 John 3, 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love, or agape, again, he says, in truth. This is such an important point to be made, and one that's not made that often. In both instances, John directly connects agape, the highest form of love, with truth. And I would propose, based upon what John is teaching us here, that there's no true love, particularly no true agape, but I think you could even take it beyond that. There's no true love without the truth. Love born out of falsehood and deception is not true love. Would you agree with me on that? And yet, how often do most people really associate the two, connect them together? Love and truth. Now, some people, oh, I love so-and-so because he or she is so hot. Woo! But you know what? Hotness is a lie. First of all, have you ever seen pictures of some of these famous people without their makeup? There's things on the line, online where you can do that, you know, with, without. And it's shocking in many instances. Uh, with the proper amount of makeup and hairstyling and clothing, you can make just about anybody look good. But even if it's a genuine beauty, uh, to one degree or another, as we get older, what happens? Beauty fades, right? So if you say you love someone because they're so beautiful, the question is, Will you still love them in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Paul McCartney, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? You see? <laughs> Beauty fades with time. What you see is not what you eventually get. And you know, even if you might say, oh, I love this person because they're so talented, they have such tremendous abilities, skills, mental faculties. I love him or her for her mind. 
But guess what? Those things fade as well. As you get older, you find yourself not being able to remember words that used to come that quick. My friend uh, Hugh and I were talking about that the other day. And it's encouraging to know that he has the same struggles that I do, and yet he's three years younger than me. So it makes me feel even better. We were out on the sidewalk a while ago, and we have all those crab apples out there. How many of you have seen the crab apples in the front? Oh, you don't go up front, do you? Anyway, so I was trying to tell somebody, we need to clean up these crab apples. We need to get a, and I couldn't remember the word dustpan. How sad is that? That's pretty sad, isn't it? I shouldn't be admitting that right now. What's the matter with me? I'll even shoot myself in the foot to make an example. So there you have it. These things fade, do they not? There's no true agape love without the truth. Oh, I love you because you love Krishna and I love Krishna. Or, you know, whoever it might be, Buddha, Confucius, you know, uh, Joseph Smith, you know, Mohammed. But the problem is, uh, if you uh, love someone because they love a false god or a false belief system, then the entire love relationships. I love you because you're a Scientologist, and I am too. Tom Cruise jumping up and down on the couch on Oprah Winfrey. If any of you ever saw that. That was when he was proclaiming his love for his ex-wife, Katie Holmes. And he is a, an avowed Scientologist, as you probably know. But again, if your whole belief system is rooted and, and rooted, I won't say grounded, but rooted in a false belief system, again, there's no truth there, so there can be no true love. I think you get the point, right? So the next time you're thinking about that issue of love, loving someone with true agape love, remember that the truth has to come into the equation. And now John says, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. To the elect chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. And so there's, this, is a, this is a deep tie and connection, or should be, between all believers. All who truly know the truth cannot help but love all others who truly know the truth. And yet, so often what we see in the church, we see a lot of bickering, backbiting, strife, contention. Right? I hate to say it, but it's true. Criticism. You know, believers criticizing one another, judging one another. Where's the agape and where's the truth and all that? Because according to John, they go hand in hand. And if we're all true believers, then we ought to love the truth and we ought to love one another. That's the evidence that we're true believers. Jesus said, all men will know that you're my disciples by this, that you have, what? Love one for another. And yet sometimes, sadly, we Christians can be awfully nasty towards one another, let alone towards those in the world. True, godly, agape love, folks, is the natural result or byproduct or fruit of knowing and walking in the truth. This is why it's so important that we do gather. Paul says, don't forsake 
the gathering together of the saints, as some are in the habit of doing. Already in the first century, people who identified as followers of Christ had stopped gathering with the body of Christ. And yet we read in Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You can't, we can't grow in our love for one another if we don't hang out together. And also, we cannot experience the, the conviction, the chastening of the Holy Spirit unless we sit under the teaching of God's Word. We need to be hearing these things regularly, all of us. Just like what we're talking about here today. How often do you hear anyone talking about this? You can't claim to be someone who loves with God's agape love if you're not walking in the truth. And you can't walk in the truth unless you know the truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And when he's saying that, he's talking about this truth. The Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, which God went to a great deal of trouble to hand down to us over a period of thousands of years. So, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Again, how do we know the truth? One, by God's Word. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for His followers. And even though you and I weren't around 2,000 years ago, I believe we were part of that prayer. He was praying for all those who were then his followers and all those who would become his followers all down through human history. And he prays to the Father and he says, Father, sanctify them, set them apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. Set apart for God's holy purposes. Sanctify them. How? By your truth, your word, Small w, when it's a big W, it's speaking of Jesus himself. Here it's just a small w, it's talking about the Holy Scriptures. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. You know, remember Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Pilate didn't have a clue. The truth was standing right in front of him. Many people today, we've gotten to a point now in our world particularly in Western civilization, but I would say it goes even beyond that, where people say, well, your truth might not be the same as my truth. How many times have you heard that one? There's only one truth. It's either true or it's not. It has nothing to do with your feelings, your emotions. Truth is not subjective. It's objective, and the object is God himself. Amen. Sanctify them. Set them apart, Father. By your truth, your word is truth. And then again, as I mentioned already, Jesus is the truth. We know this, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when John says, I love you in the truth, I love you in Christ, I love you because of the truth, because I know the truth, it's been made known to me, it's been revealed to me by the Spirit of God. If there's a lack of love in our lives, and again, let's bring it up to God's level. Our tendency is to try to bring everything down to the natural, human, earthly level. Jesus always spoke on the higher plane. You've heard me talk about this before. One of the reasons so many people don't understand Scripture 
is because they think of everything on the lower level, the lower plane, the natural plane. But when Jesus speaks, he's speaking of the spiritual because that's what really matters because that's all about eternity. This life is temporary. Everything about this life is temporary. The only thing that's eternal is is the spirit that lives within us, created in the image of God. And so God is always concerned and focused on eternity because that's the part you don't want to miss out on. Everybody's so afraid they're going to miss out on something here in this life, right? But none of this really matters that much. It's all about eternity. So, so much of what we read in the New Testament, the vast majority regarding love, is all speaking of love at the highest level, agape, unconditional love. And so if there's a lack of love in our lives, and I'm, again, I'm speaking of that higher love, either between us and God, or us and man or woman, The two go hand in hand, by the way. If we're not walking in, cultivating a love relationship with God, then we're probably going to have a hard time loving people. Now, we could lust after people. We could like people. Maybe we like the same football team, and we won't talk about that today. It's too depressing. But to really love somebody at the highest level, that agape level. If we're struggling with that, either our relationship with God or with human beings, and they do go hand in hand, then, listen to this, there probably will be a level of conviction here for many of us. If we're struggling in the area of agape, then we're probably, to some degree, not walking in the truth. Get it? Because you can't agape if you're not also walking in the truth. Everything is lies and deception. Verse 2. To the elect lady, verse 1, her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I but also all those who have known the truth, There's this mutual agape love relationship between all true believers. That's how it's supposed to be. And then he says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us, how long? Did I just talk about eternity? Yeah. Forever. So it's because of the truth. It's because God has made himself known to us. And we should never take that for granted. I often pray that prayer, Father, Thank you for making yourself known to me, for revealing yourself to me. Because otherwise I'd have no hope. I'd be lost. I didn't do it. He did it. You need to thank him for that. That he chose you and he chose to make himself known to you because there's a lot of people out there that that has not happened to yet. And we know where they're headed if they don't get right with God. Again, as I pointed out already, he's made himself known to us through his word through the Holy Scriptures, through His Son, who is the Word, that we are able to know the truth because of the truth which abides in us. And by the way, this is more than just head knowledge or what we call intellectual assent. It is a knowing through intimate relationship with the one who is the truth. You probably know this, but in the King James Version of the Bible, when it talks about a man and a woman knowing one another, 
To know someone in the King James Version is to have intimate relations with that person. And I'm not in any way comparing that to our relationship with God, except that Paul does say that the human marriage relationship is a mirror image of our relationship with God, that level of intimacy and oneness. And when he talks about the truth that abides in us, that's what John is referring to. It's a knowing. It's an intimate relationship with God. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, it has a dual application. First of all, as I mentioned, God's Word in us. See, you can know it with your mind, but it's not in you until it enters your heart. John 15, 7, Jesus says, if you abide or live in me, it's a lifestyle. It's not just going to church on Sunday mornings. If you live with me, if you live with me, abide in me, and my words abide in you. What did David, King David write all those many years ago? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. My words abide in you. If you abide or live in me and my words live in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Why? Because when God's Word lives in you, then more than likely, your desires are going to be the same as His. And so those prayers will be answered. People say, well, I pray all the time God never answers my prayers. Well, are you praying godly prayers? Does His Word live in you? Do you know what to pray and how to pray? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, the Word of God lives in you, and you're guided and directed by those things. In us, and then another key word here, forever. 1 Peter 1.24, all flesh is as grass. What happens to grass? It grows up in the springtime, gets all nice and green and tall, and you have to keep watering it and mowing it. And then now this time of the year, what's happening? It's beginning to die out, isn't it? All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures how long? Forever. So, the truth which abides in us and will be with us, again, forever, eternity. That's what God is concerned about. That's what God... Now, does God care about our daily lives? Absolutely. He cares. He says, hey, even when one bird falls to the ground, he cares. He notices. The very hairs of our head are numbered. Yes, he does care about here and now in everyday life, but he cares a lot more about what's going to happen to us when this life is over because his desire is that we would be with him forever. That's why we were created. There's only one little problem. Sin must be dealt with, must be paid for with the precious blood of Christ. And it has been. Our place, our job, if you will, is to receive that forgiveness that He purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. So we have God's Word in us forever, and yet compared to all the other activities in our lives, honestly, how much time do we spend taking in God's Word, absorbing it, right, meditating upon it? As David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And yet, that's the only thing that's going to go with us after we leave this life. 
It's God's truth, God's Word. We're going to get a brand new body one day. This body ain't going to make it. Neither is yours. Forever. And then, as we mentioned, God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Word, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, also in us. John 6.56, Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And a lot of people started to turn away and follow Christ no more after he said that. They didn't have the spiritual insight and understanding. He was speaking forward to communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, his sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't literal. Christ was not promoting cannibalism. He was saying, whoever will accept my sacrifice on the cross, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I believe we did that, was it last week? Two weeks ago we had communion together? Abides in me, lives in me. So again, if we want to abide in Christ, live in Christ, be a true child of God, follower of Christ, we have to totally embrace his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and acknowledge that that sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. And then he promises, if we embrace his sacrifice on the cross, that he will live inside of us. John fourteen twenty. at that day, once everything has been completed, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the New Testament church, the new birth for every believer, at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Again, not just temporarily, not just for this life, but forever. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness, wanting what other people have, being jealous, greedy. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you forever. In the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus instructs the apostles he says, teaching them, the disciples which you will be making, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe or obey or follow all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. And of course, even beyond that, into eternity. Let's move on to verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. There it is again. You think John's trying to make a point here? He keeps repeating it because he's trying to drive home the point of how these two are interconnected and linked. They cannot be disconnected from one another. Truth and love. So we have the New Testament twins of grace and peace, and then John takes the twins and makes them triplets adding mercy to this familiar New Testament greeting. You'll find over and over again, particularly in the writings of Paul, 
grace and peace to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth. John adds in mercy. Mercy is the other side of the coin from grace, and both of them together assure us of absolute peace in Christ. Grace, God's unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what we do deserve. The result of those two crucial ingredients in our faith, grace and peace, or mercy, result in absolute peace. Charles Ryrie puts it this way. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Mercy is God's compassion for us in our misery. And peace is the resulting wholeness of salvation. Peace is the resulting wholeness of salvation. So what does that tell us? If we are truly saved, and people go, saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? Because we're all born in sin, and the result of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So if you want to be saved out of death into life, out of darkness into the light, then you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you will be saved. A lot of people just view it as some nebulous Christian, Christianese, Christian terminology. Why do I need to be saved? Well, because you don't want to go to hell, do you? Let's put it that way. Well, no. And yet we have those crazy people who say, well, I don't mind. I'll go there and party with all my friends. Well, if you don't mind being the weenie roast, then I guess it'll be fine. Okay, verse 4. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment. See, walking in the truth is not optional for the believer. As we received commandment from the Father, I rejoiced greatly. So as a spiritual father, the elder, as a spiritual father to many believers, probably even way more than John could have ever imagined, think of how many spiritual children John and his associates have had over the last 2,000 years. As a result of their ministries, their lives, their writings, they go on and on. As a spiritual father to many believers, John derives great joy from knowing, now this is interesting, that some of your children are walking in the truth. You see, what I love about the Word of God, unlike all the other religious books in the world, for the most part, that use all this flowery language, and again, not truthful, deceptive, manipulative, God's Word is totally honest. God's Word says as believers, we should not sin, and yet, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, because God knows full well that even though we're called to not sin, in our current condition, we will not be able to achieve that in this life. We will stumble, we will fall, and God has made provision for that. Honesty, truthfulness. God is the embodiment of it. And so even here, John says, I found some of your children walking in the truth. John's being honest. Not everyone within that church that he was writing to was walking in the truth, and yet he chooses to focus on the positive rather than the negative. I rejoice greatly. At least some of them are doing it. <laughs> That's better than nothing, right? But not all. From the very beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 2 until this very day, there have always been some sheep who have wandered from the true path or the path of truth. 
What does that look like? What does it look like to not walk in the truth? Well, we, we kind of touched on it already a little bit. Those who uh, engage, first of all, he says, idle talk, gossip, slander, backbiting versus the way of agape. 1 Timothy 1.5 is our example of this. Paul says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed... So Paul again acknowledges that some in the early church had strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. Gossip, slander, backbiting, versus what Nancy Missler referred to as the way of agape. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the greatest of these is love. And we have a phenomenal description of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. To stray from that, to engage in idle talk, unprofitable, unbeneficial talk. Then we have 1 Timothy 6.10. Love of money, materialism. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. Some have strayed because they just love to hear themselves talk. They love to stir up trouble. Some have strayed because of money, materialism, the love of money. Money itself, this has been misquoted so many times, right? Money is the root of all evil. No, love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I'm sure we've all witnessed examples of that in the lives of certain people who started out well following God, but then got caught up in the love of money. 2 Timothy 2.15, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who was a prophet for money, remember? He was hired to, to prophesy against Israel. The way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. Thirdly, 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy... Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We talked about this earlier, not just intellectual knowledge, but heart knowledge, an intimate relationship with God. Falsely called knowledge by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Intellectualism, higher criticism. What is higher criticism? Higher criticism captured someone very near and dear to me. It's these intellectual so-called theologians, Bible scholars, that have spent their entire lives trying to tear down the Bible, tear down the Christian faith, claiming this and that and the other false accusations against God and His Word, higher criticism. There's a lot of those writings out there. Intellectualism elevating the human intellect and the human mind, how can our human intellect and mind even compare to God, the creator of all things? God says the wisdom of this world is foolishness to Him, and yet that has drawn others away from the faith. I mentioned, I need to look this up and make a mental note. I can't remember the guy's name. There's a whole display about him at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Ken Ham's amazing, incredible uh, answers in Genesis Creation Museum, now they've got Noah's Ark. 
We should, we should take a trip there someday, get together. That would be awesome. But this guy was a, was a uh, contemporary of Billy Graham. Anybody remember his name? No? In fact, many felt that he was the superior evangelist and anticipated that he would rise to much greater heights than Billy Graham. This is true. It's a true story. I just don't remember his name. This guy began to get sucked into the idea of evolution. Uh, there's one branch of evolution called theistic evolution where they believe God created everything, but then he, it was like a clock. He just wound it all up and then let it run down on its own. Theistic evolution, which they combine creation with evolution. And then there's other more Dar- pure Darwinistic evolution leaves God out of the equation altogether. Well, anyway, this guy got sucked into this world of intellectualism, so-called secular humanistic intellectualism. He wound up totally renouncing Christ. And yet at one time he was considered to be an even greater evangelist than Billy Graham. I mentioned a person very near and dear to me that got sucked into this. This was a person that, according to my understanding had personal daily time in the Scriptures, many other evidences of someone who was a true believer, and yet they got caught up into this intellectualism, higher criticism, false knowledge. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So the danger that Paul is warning Timothy about here and that we should all be warned of. (laughs) Oftentimes the most dangerous people in our world, the most dangerous people in our society and in our culture are the ones who appear to know the most. It's not just your average everyday person who's just out there working hard, trying to make a living, taking care of their family. It's the ones who get up and pontificate and scold and rebuke and tell you that you're stupid, you don't know anything, especially you Christians. You Christians are a bunch of brainwashed idiots. The people who claim to know it all and know it better than you do, whether it be in terms of the natural world or the spiritual world, those are the ones, and those are the ones that Jesus battled, by the way, Do we all know that? He didn't have any trouble with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the demon-possessed. No problem. Piece of cake for Jesus. The greatest opposition came from the very people that we're talking about here this morning. And they were religious, so-called spiritual leaders of Israel. Fourthly, So we have idle talk, we have love of money or materialism, we have intellectualism, and then we have specifically false teachers. Remember John said, I have found some of your children walking in the truth. So what about the ones who weren't? What were they up to? 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, their teaching will spread like gangrene. It's not innocuous. It's not neutral, it spreads like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Oh, he named names, that terrible Paul. That's not nice. Shouldn't be naming any names, really. 
Well, if their teaching spreads like gangrene, you probably need to know who they are, right? I've made a lot of people mad over the years by naming names. And you know what some of those names are. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. Wow, that's what John was talking about here. Some of them are walking in the truth. What happened to the rest? Apparently they wandered away. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Again, deceiving people, misleading them. Can you imagine, what if I got up here this morning and said, well, guys, I got some bad news. Uh, the rapture happened and we missed it. What would that do to your faith? You probably wouldn't believe me. But if you did, that could shipwreck your faith. Hey, the resurrection already took place, and why am I still in this vile, wretched, stinking body? Right? What happened? Who hoodwinked me? Who deceived me? And I'm sure that's just one example of their many false teachings. But Paul was warning Timothy, it's like gangrene. That's why we have to be so diligent. Uh, those who stand up for the truth and come out against false teaching often get labeled as haters, you know, witch hunters, judgmental. But gangrene, if it's not removed, what happens? You die, right? It'll kill you. It's a flesh-eating condition. It has to be removed. It's not necessarily comfortable. It's painful. The removal process but it'll save your life. False teachers. I've given you four examples of what happens when people don't walk in the truth. The fruit, the evidence, the idle talk, the love of money, the intellectualism, the false teachers. It's been said that if you lose, and we're talking here in reference to the, the power of the truth of God's Word, if you lose your sense of wonder... Your sense of awe. If you lose your sense of wonder and begin to wonder if God's word is really true, eventually you will wander from the truth. Did you follow me on that? We should be in awe of God and we should be in awe of His word. Never take it for granted. Never take it lightly. And so many people do, unfortunately. If you lose your sense of wonder and begin to wonder... If God's word is really true, eventually you will wander from the truth. But you have to give John credit here for accentuating the positive. Rather than saying, wow, lady, I'm really bummed because some of your kids have gone off the deep end. He says, no, I rejoice that some of them are walking in the truth. But it is quite an indictment on those who are not. And he says, as we received commandment from the Father. So John says, Walking in the truth is not optional. Well, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't think all of the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and I don't think we should take it all literally, blah, 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 blah. How many of you have heard those kinds of comments? That doesn't wash. John says that's a commandment from the Father. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. We're washed in the blood of Christ. We're also commanded as believers, as those who identify as children of God, followers of Christ, we're obligated, we're commanded to walk in the truth. To walk means to live. 
That means the truth should govern every area of our lives, whether it's human relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. So if your romantic relationship is governed by the truth of God's Word, you won't sleep with somebody you're not married to. You won't sleep with somebody somebody else is married to. You won't sleep with somebody who's of the same gender because that wouldn't be walking in the truth, would it? And we're commanded to walk in the truth. And it breaks my heart to see how the younger generation is being manipulated and brainwashed into embracing these unacceptable alternate lifestyles. There are a lot of broken kids in our world today from broken homes, and they are prime targets to be controlled, manipulated, coerced, convinced that they should pursue something other than what God commands. Breaks my heart, just like so many women have been treated that way with regard to abortion. I don't blame those women entirely because they have been, for several generations now, several decades, have been brainwashed into believing that it's okay, there's nothing wrong with it, it's not really a human being, it's for your health, when the truth is just the opposite. It damages a woman's body to have an abortion, it's not healthy. You see how that works? We need to pray, pray, pray for the children of America, the women of America, everybody. 1 John 2, 4, and 5, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, by this we know that we are in Him. We've covered this before. It's talking about lifestyle. God doesn't expect perfection from us in this life. He knows we can't achieve it. But it's again, are we making every effort to walk in the truth? And yet sometimes we fall short. We know we will, probably quite often to be honest. But are we attempting, making the effort, determined to follow His commandments? Or are we just saying, hey, whatever, man. Once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does not promote that. Quite the opposite. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Again, God doesn't mince words. When God talks about love, he knows what he's talking about, and he means it. And when he's talking about lies and deception... He knows what he's talking about and he means it. By this we know that we're in him. By their fruits, Jesus said, you shall know them. What is the remedy? What is the antidote to this dichotomy between what we should be, what God calls us to be and expects us to be, and what we actually are many times? What, is, what, is the, what bridges the gap? It's humility, it's brokenness, it's confession. It's repentance, that when we do fall into sin, we are quick to confess it to God, repent of it, which means to turn and go the other way, not cover it up, not hide it, not deny it. So many people are afraid to admit who they are, really are, what they've really done. What you should be afraid of is not doing that. God already knows. 
You can't hide anything from God. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know you. The biggest danger is not admitting it, not acknowledging it, not confessing it. Just humble yourself before the living God, and the Bible promises He will lift you up. Pride goes before a fall, but those who humble themselves before God will be lifted up. And you know what? At the end of the day, some people may judge you. They may, oh, wow, can you, you know what they did? End of the day, the only thing that matters is what God thinks. And God loves you. He sent His Son to die on the cross for you, and He promises if you will humble yourself, He will lift you up. And those people with attitudes, God will deal with them. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not our place, it's His place. 1 John 1, 6, final verse today. If we say that we have fellowship with Him... If we say that we have fellowship with Him, intimacy with Him, agape, relationship with Him, and walk in darkness, which is the opposite of walking in the truth, walking in the light. And again, what does that mean to walk? It talks about lifestyle. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. How do you learn to walk in the truth? You practice every day. Again, with the David said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you want to get out of the darkness and into the light, you've got to take the lamp and the light of God's word and let that guide your path. And then you will walk in the truth. And you cannot allow yourself to be overcome by your own feelings, your own emotions, your own opinions. Because I've seen believers do that. Those who claim to be believers. Well, I know the Bible says that, but I just can't do it. It's just not right. I can't disassociate myself from that person because they're in sin. And yet the Bible says you're supposed to. Out of hate? No, out of love. Because if you don't, then it's as if you're endorsing their activity. You see? And then they'll never come to repentance because they think, it must be okay. Uh, my pastor's daughter from high school, great friend, we still communicate every once in a while. And it's like uh, 40 years later, 50 years later. She was sharing with me a few years ago. She happened to come through Albuquerque. We went to the Cracker Barrel. I think that's what it was. Anyway, she was telling me how her son, they were living in Northern California. He, her husband pastored up there for many years. Monterey. Uh, her son had gone down to L.A. and professing believer, I think he was about 26 at the time or so, and she was sharing with me how he and his girlfriend were living together out of wedlock and yet identifying as believers. And her son told her, well, all my friends are doing it. They think it's okay. And we're all Christians. You see how that works? If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, and I've already defined that for you, haven't I? To walk in darkness is to not walk in the truth. That means His Word is not a lamp under your feet and a light under your path. You're doing your own thing and asking God to bless it. It doesn't work that way. So, 
As we close today, having covered these first four verses, I think we can honestly say the apostle of love, John, little children love one another, but he's also the apostle of truth, right? Why? There's an old song, uh, love and marriage, right? Goes together like a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. Well, that was then, this is now. But, why is John the apostle of love and also the apostle of truth? Because you can't have one without the other. And so this is a decision, this is a choice that each one of us must make. It almost seems like it should go without saying, but apparently it doesn't go without saying because even John saw fit to write a letter about it. How many of you want to walk in love, walk in agape? All believers should want that. That's our heritage. That's our legacy in Christ. To be able to love in a way, in a manner that no one else can. Because God is love. And so if God doesn't live inside of you, you'll never be able to achieve that level of agape love. You might phileo, brotherly love, warm, tender feelings of affection. Undoubtedly, just about everybody will eros. Lust, but if you really want to reach the apex and the epitome of the highest form of love, then God has to be living inside of you. And we've already learned today that He can and He will. If we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we're born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes to live inside of us. Jesus comes to live inside of us. And Jesus is God. But if you want to walk in love... That means you also have to be committed and dedicated to what? Walking in the truth. Sometimes that's not going to feel right. It's not going to feel good. It's going to go against your emotions. It's going to go against the philosophies of men. And that's why your very rock, your very foundation has to be the Word of God. It can't be the philosophies of men. It can't be your own feelings or emotions. It can't be what your husband, wife, brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, co-worker tells you, if it doesn't line up with the truth of God's word, guess who needs to win? God. Are you willing to make that kind of commitment? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this tremendous passage. The Apostle John, the Apostle of truth, the Apostle of love is very deep. And he's given us some amazing teachings in the New Testament. Lord, help us to truly apply his words, which are your words. Help us to apply them in our own lives, Father. Lord, this is so important. And yet I can't remember hearing very many people talk about this connection between truth and love. John certainly has spoken of it profoundly, deeply. Lord, help us. We need your help. We're, we're bombarded daily by lies from the world, our, the flesh, and the devil. But Lord, we want to be like King David. And we know he wasn't perfect. He certainly had his sins as well. But your word says he was a man after your own heart because he was always ready to confess his sins and repent and get right with you and move on. Lord, he said that he had hidden your word in his heart that he might not sin against you. He also said that your word is a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. Lord, may we be like David.
May we hide your word in our hearts so that we can walk in the truth. May we use your word to illuminate and light our way through life so that we don't get off onto the wrong path, that we don't begin to walk in darkness rather than in the light. We pray that we would be so resolute, so rooted and grounded in the truth of your word that no one can pull us away from that path that leads to eternal life. And we pray in these closing moments for those who would desire to come and receive prayer, whether it would be for salvation, recommitment, uh, maybe there's a repentance that needs to take place, a confession, whatever it might be. Lord, that you would draw them by your Spirit and that you would prepare the members of our prayer team to minister effectively to them in this moment, this time of need. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us just to maintain a worshipful attitude as we sing our final song this morning. And we ask that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in these final moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.